In 2019, the agriculture sector was responsible for 15% of Australia's carbon emissions. But how do you take action in a sector where most emissions come from animals like cows and sheep? It's also a sector which is particularly vulnerable to climate change. Changes in rainfall patterns, threats of heat waves and bushfires all threaten the livelihoods of farmers. I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and here to discuss the third report in this series on how Australia can reach net zero is Tony Wood, Energy and Climate Change Program Director, and James Hart, Associate. Welcome, Tony. Welcome, James. Hi, Clay. So, Tony, this report addresses many of the issues facing the agricultural sector in reaching net zero. Where do the emissions in this sector come from? And are cows just mini coal-fired power stations on legs? Well, I don't think um, the Prime Minister is going to carry a cow into Parliament anytime soon, so maybe the comparison is a little bit too difficult. But there are some interesting similarities, in a sense, because the challenges of reducing emissions from cows and the challenges of avoiding emissions from coal mining are equally challenging. But as you said in the introduction, Kat, the important issue here is that agriculture contributes about 15% of our emissions at the moment, even more so that because our emissions have been down slightly in agriculture, because we did have an extended period of drought across the country, if we assume, as the government does in its own projections, that we are now in a process of herd rebuilding, if anything, those emissions are going to increase. So in the absence of anything else, we're going to see a sector which is 15% of Australia's emissions and growing. That's a challenge. When we look at it, the vast majority of those emissions are directly associated with the animals. And for Australia, probably even more so than some parts of the Northern Hemisphere, it's grazing animals. We don't tend to have as much dependence on feedlots as other countries do. And so when you think about those grazing animals, if you're trying to do something to reduce their emissions, Dealing with those animals on a day-to-day basis to help them reduce their emissions is more than challenging. And so that's where the big problem is. There are other things in the sector. The other you know, uh, 25% of the sector's emissions comes from things like on-farm machinery, tractors, and those sorts of things, uh, and also the way we use fertilizers, because the, 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 some activities, when we um, think about the way we actually apply uh, fertilizers and so forth, does produce greenhouse gas emissions, In both cases, there are things we can do there, which are relatively clear uh, and maybe not all that expensive, um, will require a lot of interface with farmers. But the big issue is going to be how do we get on top of this? Because it would not be appropriate to exclude agriculture if we're serious about net zero. So, James, this is actually one of the few sectors where emissions have actually gone down over the past 15 years. Why is that? Sure. So emissions in this sector are generally linked to herd numbers and to production and to crop production. So emissions have fallen in recent years, partly because of uh, drought that we've had uh, across the east coast of Australia. Looking back over the past few decades as well, we've seen kind of a long-term trend in the decline in the number of sheep that we have in Australia, and that's had an impact as well. But the federal government in their most recent emissions projections, which they put out in in 2020, uh, they forecast that emissions from agricultural activities are likely to rise to 82 million tonnes by 2030, up from the 76.5 million tonnes that it is today. Um, And and that rebound is basically because uh, they're forecasting that production will return to sort of long-run trends um, as we recover from years of drought. Given that emissions are forecast to go up 
um, and that the government's projections don't see the deployment of very much technology to reduce those emissions. That's why we think the sector warrants particular attention today. So, Tony, there's really ongoing debate here amongst the nationals about whether agriculture should even be included in any net zero targets. Should it be? The trick here is that we've moved to some place, maybe we didn't even notice it, from a world in which we were setting some broad emissions reduction targets in terms of percentage emissions by a certain date. Even if we used to even think about what sort of concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere we were aiming for. And they're all relevant if we're trying to get greenhouse climate change under control. The change to net zero has emerged relatively recently, and it is very important to think about this. It's almost a piece of very simple arithmetic. So in the days before the Industrial Revolution, basically emissions from greenhouse gas emissions from animals and people were pretty well balanced by the absorptions by the plants and the oceans. So the world was in balance. What we've done over the last couple of hundred years is screw up that balance, and what we now need to do is get it back to a balance. So that means that's why net zero is so important. So any emissions, whatever we do in any sector, any emissions that are not avoided have to be offset by taking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere, any emissions. So whether those emissions come from coal-fired power stations, whether they come from uh, the back end of cars or the front end of cows and sheep, doesn't matter. They all have to be included in the arithmetic and in the fundamental objective of net zero. But that doesn't mean that they're all equally easy. And one of the reasons why many countries have excluded agriculture is because it is hard and also because in some ways it goes to our identity as Australians because we like to identify with the land in various ways and also because agriculture produces our food and not surprisingly, we can't imagine a world without food. Now, different sorts of food, of course, can, can produce different sorts of different emissions. And so that's why you end up with this. And of course, finally, you alluded to this political debate. And I think... What's interesting is that for other reasons, the most of the farming community sees themselves as being part of the solution. They want to be part of the solution to the climate change, and they are looking to take action. And many of them, through their own uh, industry associations, have already made commitments to net zero by dates much earlier than 2050. And yet, at the federal coalition party room level, this is very much a, a, an unsettled debate. And so you can see this tension between those who would purport to represent farmers and the farmers themselves being a very difficult tension. And I'm not saying that anyone's bad or, or good or evil. The question, the interesting thing for me is how that tension is playing out will determine um, to some extent how successfully we can ensure that those things we can do to reduce emissions are done. Now, that's a nice lead in for me because I think for farmers, it sounds like as a city slicker, I guess myself, it sounds quite difficult to reduce emissions from animals. I mean, I mean, how do you actually do that? James, are there strategies farmers can actually put into place to reduce these emissions? So there are actions that can be taken. They won't be able to fully eliminate uh, emissions at this point. One of the Positive things, though, is that, is that a lot of the activities that you can undertake to reduce emissions also have co-benefits like boosting productivity. But let's start with the animals. So the animals are responsible for about 60 million tonnes of emissions. So you know that's way more than half in the in the um, agriculture sector. And the largest source of emissions from animals is methane, which is produced in a process called enteric fermentation that happens inside the guts, basically, of, of, of livestock, um, particularly cattle and sheep. 
the process that makes methane in those animals is actually taking away valuable energy that the animal could be using to put on more weight. So by reducing methane emissions in those animals, you're actually getting a, a co-benefit in improving um, the productivity of the animal. Some of the solutions, uh, some of the more promising ones that, that are kind of on the horizon for reducing these emissions are feed additives and, and sort of chemical supplements that can reduce emissions, the methane produced in these animals by, in some cases, as much as 90%. The, the two most promising ones are a red algae called asparagopsis and another chemical called 3-NOP, or I think it's 3-nitrooxypropanol, a bit of mouthful. But the challenge is in distributing these supplements to the animals that we have in Australia. So we've got 64 million sheep and 24 million cattle. If we kind of compare that to the industrial sector, there's just a few hundred big emitting facilities. So, you know, there's a clearly a big logistical and technical challenge in actually distributing these technologies um, to all of the livestock. And the other challenge, as Tony said, is that most cattle in Australia are grazing. And so at any given time, only about 4% of our national herd is in feedlots where their diets can be controlled. A lot of cattle are grazing in um, the rangelands and, and they might go days without seeing another human. Finding ways of packaging up these supplements to make sure that they get into the animal's diet every day is a real key technical challenge that needs to be solved in order to make big emissions reductions in the sector. So aside from the methane that's made in the stomachs, there's also emissions associated with manure from animals. Um, this is easier to deal with on kind of intensive farms like dairy farms and piggeries where the manure is often um, stored in ponds. Uh, and the, the methane emissions that come out of that, you can capture them and you can burn them. And there are some farms actually produce electricity through burning this methane. So another co-benefit there. Or you can just treat the, uh, the manure and, and, and change the way you store it to reduce the emissions that come out of it. If we look at the non-animal side of things, so reducing fertilizer use through applying the right fertilizers at the right time in the right place is clearly a win-win both for the farmers and for the environment because there'll be less uh, emissions associated with um, the excess fertilizer and also less runoff, um, less excess nutrients accumulating in waterways, which we've seen has contributed to things like algal blooms. In addition to managing fertilizers better, you can also plant legumes in rotation, which can help to fix nitrogen in the soil. And I guess longer term to sort of tackle the diesel use on farms, which is roughly 10% of farm emissions, there are electric alternatives and even hydrogen fuel cell alternatives. So tractors and, and harvesters that uh, might have a, a battery in them or, or, an, or a hydrogen fuel cell. These are under development, but they're not yet widely available. I guess one of the challenges in agriculture, same as we've seen in the transport sector, is the rate at which you turn over your machinery has a big impact in terms of how much you can reduce emissions by 2050. Like if 2050 is your target and you're buying a piece of machinery that's going to last a decade or more and it's using diesel and you buy it in 2045, then it's still going to be producing emissions after 2050. So James, there are other things that we can do as well. I mean, we will be looking in future at offsets. And can you tell us a little bit about that and how it's relevant to the agricultural sector? So this is one of the things that has the industry quite excited is that there's an opportunity uh, for many farmers to actually remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it either in trees or in soil on their property. And this is a significant opportunity because more than half of Australia's land mass is managed by farmers. There are also co-benefits associated with removing carbon dioxide and storing it in trees and soil. So for example, 
farmers can plant shelter belts of trees that offer shade and protection to livestock. And boosting soil carbon um, is known to have fertility benefits for the soil. And it's sort of, it's an action that we would want to take, even if we didn't have climate change as a problem, like maintaining soil carbon is really important. These actions that remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere do carry a risk though, that the carbon won't be locked up permanently. Um, and that's something we're going to explore in our next report in the series, which is on offsetting. The other question is, like, will the sector use these carbon removals to offset their own emissions? If, if we're all heading towards net zero and we have to offset all of our own emissions, will the agriculture sector use these removals for their own? Or will they sell the credits that they make from pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere? to other sectors. I was going to just butt in there because that was something that came up in the report, which was whether it would be more efficient for some farmers to um, run their land as essentially carbon offsets than it was to actually run it as a farm. So that will depend largely on the price that they can get from selling offsets um, versus, I guess, how productive their land is, how much money they could make from doing traditional agricultural activities. I think what we're more likely to see is farmers doing a bit of both and often integrating practices that store carbon into their existing agricultural activities. So, you know, planting a shelter belt on a farm means you can still continue using the farm for livestock while storing carbon. The farms that are likely that, that might, for example, switch to just storing carbon are probably the ones that are on really marginal, underproductive land where it's actually really hard to break even with the agricultural activities they're doing today. But if, if, there are buy, if there are buyers from other sectors who want to pay a lot to remove emissions from the atmosphere, then that could offer a really good economic opportunity to those farmers. I guess for the, for the ones who are you know, going to continue doing agricultural activities, they have to be mindful of the fact that if you're selling your credits from pulling carbon dioxide down to someone else, you don't get to count those against your own emissions as well. That, that would be double counting. So you can't double dip the uh, carbon counting. Exactly. That's right. It's a mathematical equation. You know, you can't, can't use something twice yep. uh, in that equation. Exactly. Yep. That, the atmosphere cares about the tons of carbon in the atmosphere. And yeah, you've got to be careful effectively with how, with how you account for those. So, you know, if we're serious about net zero and there are other sectors lining up to offset their own emissions... And the agriculture sector is going to have, you know, a large amount of emissions left to offset as well. That's going to really affect the overall supply and demand of offsets in the future. So, Tony, I mean, listening to James talk about all these things that farmers can be doing just really shines a light on how complicated and kind of technical reducing emissions in the agriculture sector is. What is the part for governments to play here? I mean, they're not necessarily on the land themselves, but what the, can they be doing to reduce emissions in this sector? Well, I think one of the things that in um, we've discovered in producing this series of reports, Kat, is that um, while there are specific circumstances that relate to each sector, and we've been talking about some of those that relate to the agricultural sector particularly, there are also more general themes that come through. And one of them is that there are things that could be done now, which at relatively low cost could start reducing emissions in areas that we're not, such as including agriculture. There are things that we probably have a bit of an idea of what they might be to reduce emissions, but it's still expensive. And then there are areas which we really just don't have a clue yet, to be honest. Uh, and there's those things in agriculture. Now, the role of government then is quite important because firstly, the fundamental concept of reducing emissions is something that no sector naturally does of itself. It costs money um, 
unless there's some sort of imperative or obligation on the people who produce those emissions, they don't do it. They don't tend to do it out of their own, the generosity of their heart, for example. Um, so what's going to drive that? Now, we are seeing, of course, voluntary commitments to reduce emissions. We are seeing in the industrial sector, many companies now have made commitments to net zero by 2050 or even earlier. And in the agricultural sector, organisations like the meat and livestock industry have committed to net zero even by 2030. So they've made those commitments. Um, the question is, how is it going to be paid for? And that's where the role of government comes in. So we, we do have in Australia a concept called the Emissions Reduction Fund, which has, um, uh, was introduced by the uh, Abbott government um, not long after they were elected. And it was introduced to try and recognise that certain on-farm activities could reduce emissions. And they created a structure in which we can give some integrity about those emissions so you know what you're what being paid for. And the government put in place a structure to buy those emissions reduction from farmers, but also from industry. So if we're serious about growing these sort of activities, the government needs to do two things. One is it needs to really seriously drive that emissions reduction fund. It is on, on budget allocation, so it requires the weight. The nature of the beast requires direct additional funding from government. The second thing is that, like a lot of small businesses, farmers, like their animals, as James was describing, uh, are spread right across the country. And so getting that information uh, and understanding and incentive into the hands of the farmers is not simple because farmers are busy people. They've got all sorts of other things on their mind and so on. So we think that one of the things government could do is establish something that has been tried successfully before is a serious what's called an agricultural extension program. And that's the situation in which effectively um, specialist agricultural consultants work directly with farmers to help them adopt some of those things that James was talking about. And they can directly therefore have an impact on their emissions and also deliver those co-benefits in terms of making their farms more productive um, in a time when they're very, very busy. So there are that's the sort of things that governments could do now, which would start to reduce emissions immediately. And then there are other things that governments need to do about supporting technology development, which would actually try and impact on those emissions, other emissions sectors down the, down the track a bit. There's something that we have been talking about a little bit at Grattan here, and it's a question of whether now is the time for bold policy change. I mean, we're seeing bold policy changes in other countries right now. What makes the post-pandemic world the time to act on climate change here? The word bold policy action reminds me of too many yes minister programs, so I better be careful about that. But I think the, the, the issue here is that over the last 10 or 15 years, most of this century, there's been some very fundamental changes in the way we think about climate change. Firstly, that climate is changing. The visible impact of a changing climate is very clear. And agriculture is, as you said at the very introduction of this um, uh, podcast, Kat, one of those areas that is affected by the changing climate. ABARES, the National um, uh, Resource Economics Group for the government, estimated that between 2001 and 2020, agriculture was negatively impacted, negatively impacted by 23% in terms of its economic activity. And that's a cost of thousands of tens of thousands of dollars on average per farmer. So they are seeing the real impact of a changing climate. Secondly, the world, messily, 
not particularly easily, and we'll see how this plays out at the upcoming summit in Glasgow later this um, in, in October, November later this year, we will see how difficult it is, but we also will see some further progress. And so Australia is going to be at that table. And of course, uh, as many people listening to this podcast would understand, there's all sorts of pressure emerging from the Australian government to take a stronger position than we already have on climate change. So that's the other reason. And then the final reason, which is very important, and that is that um, right across the economy, organisations and businesses that were resisting action on climate change have almost gone 180 degrees and are now pushing for action on climate change. They're pushing, they're making commitments themselves to reduce emissions and they're putting pressure on the government to do the same thing to help them do it, provide the support, provide the policy framework for this to happen. And so all of these things are lining up. And that's what I think overall gives us optimism, Kat, that as we are talking about this in 2021, whilst there are huge challenges ahead, as we've seen from some of the big reports that have been published recently about the impact of a changing climate and the way um, we've got a long way to go, but we can see some alignment. So now is the time to make take some action. And of course, we do know from the work we've been doing that a lot of the actions we will take are actually going to be not just uh, relatively low cost, but in some cases, even a negative cost, if I can say that, actually a net benefit, because either the co-benefits that we'd see from things like changing agricultural practices may even outweigh the climate benefits. And other sectors, such as we said in our transport report, having electric vehicles will be cheaper than having internal combustion vehicles and all the other benefits that go with having a cleaner um, environment. So I think if we can start to move now, we will begin to see the benefit, some of those benefits immediately. And once we start, what we do know is it'll get easier. Thank you so much, Tony and James, for discussing this Net Zero series with us on the podcast. And we will have more on climate change in the following weeks as we talk more about the offsets. You can continue the conversation with us on Twitter at Grattan Inst and social media at Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcasting app. We wish you all very well from the Grattan team and thanks so much for listening.